so why don't, we, uh, why don't we pray and then get into it. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace that comes to us through the gospel, through Jesus Christ. We love him, we admire him, we revere him, we respect him, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will come now and lead us in the truth. May we savor and treasure the truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, some books grab your attention from the very beginning. Page one, it's a page turner. You just want to stick with it. They hook you from the beginning and you can't seem to put the book down. Have you ever experienced that? You know what I'm talking about? They pique your interest and then they don't let you go. And I thought that uh, Unbroken, it was a biography, um, a story about a, a World War II veteran was just amazing. I thought that book was that way, just couldn't put it down. Literature becomes so much more than words on a page, the deeper that you engage the book, the more you experience it. You just have to engross yourself in the book for a while, and it can truly change you. Each detail of the book builds the plot and advances your mind toward a very particular end. Well-written history is this way. The page is leading you to amazement. I can't believe this actually happened. It, It grips you. It pulls you in. And with history, the more you know about the backstory, the details, the people, the places, the events, the more captivating the story is. As we enter into a new sermon series on the book of John, there are some details of the backstory of John that help set the stage for this fantastic book. We're going to be in John for a long, long time. I'm just going to to tell you that up front. But it is an extraordinary book with amazing content that we're going to learn so much over the course of the next 16 years. I'm just kidding. It won't be that long. (laughs) So before you fall asleep on me, you've got to see the extraordinary nature of John and his writing. William Hendrickson said, the gospel according to John is the most amazing book that was ever written. And though you might find me boring, I assure you that the content of the book will not be boring. Let's set the stage a bit. First, the manuscripts. We don't have the original manuscripts of the Scripture in our possession. We have copies, and we have a lot of copies. Uh, We would expect these copies to have some variances or differences when you study them, and there are some. But no variance of the biblical text makes any doctrinal difference whatsoever. We have a reliable Bible passed to us. Now, some reject the Bible because we don't have the original manuscripts. We only have copies, and they believe that the copies are unreliable because of the variances. Yet, compared to any ancient document, the Bible has an abundance of copies. The next closest document having about 11.5% of the copies that we have of the New Testament alone. In addition, the copies that we do have have incredible agreement and accuracy. Another thing to consider about ancient books is the amount of time between the published date and the nearest manuscript evidence that we have. The the closer, the better. That should make sense. Plato's gap is over 1,200 years between publication and the nearest manuscript that we have. Homer's Iliad, around 400 to 500 years. The Bible... 
Less than 100 years. If you look at one of the fragments, it could be as little as 45 years from the time it was published to the earliest copy that we have. Carson, Moo, and Morris say, on whole, the text is in good shape. I like that. We have uh, a great case to be made for the scriptures. John stands among the biblical canon as reliable, accurate for an ancient text. The deeper you investigate the evidence, the more reasonable John becomes in his book. This is an exceptional book, and the lack of evidence is not a good reason to reject the Bible. Years ago, I saw this quote on a billboard, never, never, never give up. And I found it amusing at the time. I I think I was mocking the quote because I thought it lacked originality and eloquence, uh, even though Winston Churchill said a version of the quote. But the more you know about Churchill and his circumstances, the more powerful his words become. Between September 1940 and May of 1941, the Germans pummeled Great Britain in a massive attack called the Blitz. Sixteen British cities were heavily bombed by the Luftwaffe. London ravaged 71 times over the span of almost 37 weeks. One stretch for 57 consecutive nights they were hit. Buildings blown to bits. Thousands of people died. About a year later, on October 29, 1941, the war is still on, Churchill addressed the students at the Harrow School with these words, never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honor and good sense, never yield to force, never yield to apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Never give in is powerful against the backdrop of World War II and Great Britain and the grave circumstances presenting themselves to Prime Minister Churchill and the rest of the world. The man and the circumstances give the words their impact. So we turn to the author, the author. Interestingly, the book of John is unsigned. Um, But in the second century, there was agreement that the Apostle John authored it, and it's probable that John's authorship was universally accepted before the second century. So there's great evidence that he was the author. Furthermore, unlike the other Gospels, the book of John refers to John the Baptist as simply John. Now, why only John when all the other Gospels refer to him as John the Baptist? Well, if the Apostle John was the author, he would feel comfortable referring to John the Baptist as simply John because his name was John and he didn't use his own name in the book. He didn't use the name of his brother James either. Instead, John is referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, why not refer to your own name in the book? I think John was being humble. And instead of using his name, he used the one whom Jesus loved as a way to emphasize Jesus Christ, as a way to draw attention to the gospel and what God did for him. The early church accepted John's authorship, as good as we can tell. The backstory is fascinating. I found some great stuff. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, famous for being martyred in A.D. 156 at the age of 86 because he wouldn't renounce Christ. 
he wouldn't back down from the gospel, so they killed him. It is believed that Polycarp associated with the Apostle John along with Andrew and Philip. So John taught Polycarp. Then Polycarp taught Irenaeus. Here is how Irenaeus recounted the scene. I remember the events of those days more clearly than those which have happened recently. For what we learn as children grows up with the soul and becomes united to it. So I can speak even of the place in which the blessed Polycarp sat and disputed how he came in and went out, the character of his life, the appearance of his body, the discourse which he made to the people, how he reported his converse with John and with the others who had seen the Lord, how he remembered their words and what were the things concerning the Lord which he had heard from them, including his miracles and his teaching, and how Polycarp had received them from the eyewitnesses of the word of life and reported all things in agreement with the Scriptures. End of quote. That's remarkable. That's remarkable history outside of the Bible confirming the things inside of the Bible. Irenaeus remembers Polycarp talking about his interaction with the apostles. Those who had seen the risen Jesus Christ. Irenaeus wrote this, John, the disciple of the Lord, who leaned back on his breast, published the gospel while he was resident at Ephesus in Asia. I think you can say, John the Apostle wrote it. Now, you know how sometimes scholarship gets, we play games with it, twist it around. There is so much great evidence that John wrote this book. John's authorship is virtually unanimous through the centuries. There is no good reason to doubt it. Now, you might hear this and say, I'm just not a history buff. I don't know this stuff. And like me, if you're like me, you you get bogged down by the dates and places and people. I can't keep it all straight in my head. But don't miss the point. There is great scholarship and evidence inside and outside the Bible that supports the reliability of the Bible. When we study the book of John, we're studying a meticulous eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from someone who knew Jesus best, was part of his intimate group. So what does history tell us about this man, John? Let's take a look at the man, the man. Now, I respect and admire John. I feel like I relate to him, the kind of guy that he was the traits and characteristics, ones that I think all of us can identify with. First, John was Jewish, Palestinian, and Galilean. He grew up religious, Jewish actually, and was acquainted with Jewish culture and tradition, even Palestinian topography, and he lived in Galilee. We know John was the son of Zebedee and Salome and brother of James. Matthew 4.21 tells us, And going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father. Now you have to dig a little bit to find out about John's mother. Uh, If you take three texts together, Matthew 27, 55, and 56, Mark 15, 40, and Mark 16, 1, you'll find that John's mother was Salome. An interesting side note, you can make a really good case from the scripture that Salome was the Virgin Mary's sister. That would have made Jesus and John cousins. I found that pretty fascinating. Not sure if it's 100%, but the case can be made. 
What else do we know? John's family partnered with Simon Peter in business. They were fishermen. I like that. Any fishermen in here? I can identify with that. They were hardworking men, probably with calluses on their hands. If you're tossing around full fishing nets all day, you're probably jacked. You know what I'm saying? You probably have some muscle tone. You're probably not in the weight room often because you don't need to be. You're tossing fish around all day. They're probably muscular. John was nautically trained and knew his fishing trade. He knew commerce from running a family business. Fishing in Galilee was thriving because except for the coast, Galilee supplied uh, fish for all of the country. Luke 5, 3 and 10 tell us that John, along with James and Peter, owned multiple boats, at least one owned by John's family. They even had employees, according to Mark 1.20. So he's got a business, he's got boats, okay, he's got employees, and it is likely that John's family had a really good income, perhaps a, a great one. They could have been wealthy. Therefore, John and his brother probably had a good education as well. Jesus handpicked John as a disciple and an apostle. John, James, and their dad, they're in a boat. They're mending their nets. When Jesus called out to John and James, and Matthew recalled, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Can you believe that? Just up and walked away. John and James walked away from their family and from this probably lucrative business because Jesus became more compelling to them than all that they left behind. Jesus chose to put John into his leadership training group, 12 men selected by our Lord. John was one of the 12, but we also see in the scripture that John was one of the intimate three that Jesus had taken with him on different occasions. On one occasion, Jesus overheard some people break the news to a ruler of the synagogue that his daughter had died. Tough thing to say. Tough thing to receive. Jesus tells the ruler, do not fear, only believe. Then Jesus invited only three men to go with him, to go to the ruler's house, to enter into this really difficult situation of this 12-year-old girl perishing, people grieving, and he takes three guys with him. Peter, James, and John. Only three. What happened next amazed these guys. When they went to the ruler's house, Jesus clears the house. He says, everybody out. And he takes the parents of the girl and he takes these three men and he goes in to see the body. And he raises her from the dead. John saw that. John was there, eyewitness account, to see the Lord Jesus Christ give life back to a 12-year-old girl. Imagine the rejoicing and the partying after that girl walks out of there. Things like that, they change you. They change you. John was among the three at the transfiguration of Jesus and in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus invited these three along with him to watch and to pray. In the last moments of Jesus' life, he brings these three guys with him. You know what happened? This sounds like me. They fell asleep. Their, their eyes were... And, and off they went. And Jesus is surprised. What are you guys doing? I ask you just for a little bit to watch and pray. They were sleeping. 
John shared significant moments with Jesus Christ and the other apostles. Jesus nicknamed John and James the sons of thunder. Yet another reason why I love this guy, John. A nickname can tell you a lot about the man. Luke 9.49 says, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Now, it takes guts for a guy to, to go out and call someone out saying, you can't do that, man. You're not one of us. You got to stop that. You know, he, son, son of thunder, son of thunder. I love this one. In Luke 9, 51 through 55, Jesus sent some people ahead into Samaria to make preparations for him. And uh, you might know that there's bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews, all right? They're, they're not really that friendly with each other. And uh, it, it ends up when Jesus goes that the Samaritans reject him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Well, John and James take notice of this, the old sons of thunder. And they respond, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Isn't that amazing? Here they see, you, you're going to reject Jesus? Oh, that's how we're going to play this. Hey, Christ, do you, do you want us just to kill them all? I mean, that's something I can somewhat identify. I'm not sure I would have said it, but I can identify with where they're coming from. That's honest. Jesus ends up rebuking them. That wasn't in Christ's heart at that particular moment. But it showed John's heart for Jesus and his passion and zeal for truth. When you read John, he doesn't really strike you in an aggressive way, as an aggressive guy, but Jesus gave him the nickname for a reason. But grace changed John. His writing takes on a different tone, as we'll see in the coming, uh, coming weeks and years. Uh, John referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. To say that, John wasn't being arrogant. To say he loved me and he didn't love any, anyone else. I think he was emphasizing the great love that Jesus gave him. He felt it. He knew it. He knew that Christ was for him and that he loved him and that he chose him. It humbled him. William Hendrickson said that no one knew Jesus better than John did. They were great friends. We learn from John 13, 23 through 25 that during the Last Supper, John sat closest to Jesus. And uh, we know that he was so comfortable with Jesus that he reclined back against him and he even asked him a personal question. Who is it that would betray you? Uh, Jesus washed John's feet that same night. He knew Christ. John was also a best-selling published author. John really, his name should be right there on the New York Times bestseller list every year because he sells a lot of books still every year. All of his five books, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation are all bestsellers and read by millions and millions of people. His books have helped spark the most powerful spiritual revolution known to man. He is one significant author among the exclusive guild of spirit-authenticated, uh, spirit-inspired authors of Scripture. John was also a pillar of the church. In Galatians 2.9, the Apostle Paul mentions that John seemed to be a pillar or someone who had authority or leadership. He was an apostle, an elder who had authority in God's church. Along with others, he helped to decide really important matters in the church. 
And as an aside, this is one of the reasons why biblical eldership is so important and why the progress here at Jerusalem Church in regards to eldership is so encouraging for us to see. You should be encouraged from what you work through and as what we continue to press on in and continue to strengthen the leadership of this church, be encouraged. God is good. John was no doubt a pillar of the church and along with this, he experienced immense pain. He suffered the murder of his brother and the loss of his family. From Acts 12, 2, we learn that King Herod had killed James with the sword. Um, His brother, the one that he experienced so much with, one of the intimate three, they saw the most intimate moments of Jesus' life. He was with his brother, he loved his brother, he was friends with his brother, and Herod had him killed with a sword. A bloody, awful murder. On top of that, John probably outlived all of his family. He lived late into the um, first century. He was a man shaped by death and suffering and pain. John was an eyewitness of the life, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He had a front row seat for it all. Even the horrific crucifixion of his best friend, John 19, 26, and 27 records that from the cross, Jesus looks down at his precious mother Mary, and he says these words, woman, behold your son. And John was so near at that moment. And then he addresses John, who is with his mom, behold your mother. John later wrote, and from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. That's emotional. In the last moments of Jesus Christ's life, he entrusts his blessed, precious mother to his friend, maybe his cousin, John. That's saying a lot for John. Jesus trusted him. How that would change a man. John was extraordinary. Unlike the other apostles, John lived a long life, and uh, he died a natural death. Every apostle was martyred except John, and there is good evidence that dates John's death around A.D. 98. He lived for a long time. That's, That's around 65 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John had an extraordinary life. And, he, and had extraordinary things to write about. That's why a very specific purpose drove this man to write this gospel that we're going to be studying. The purpose. The purpose of John. I've always appreciated receiving written words of encouragement from people. I'm, I'm a word guy, so when people take the time to pen those words out, it means a lot to me. Isn't it special when someone thinks about you enough to take the time to get the card, to write some personal words, and it just ministers to you? It's so encouraging. Well, words become even more significant when you consider the person writing them and the reason they're writing them. If you go into a restaurant and you're finished and it's time for the receipt to come and you say, oh, the waitress put a little happy note on with a smiley face. Thanks for coming in. It gives you a little bit of a warm feeling, but you toss the receipt. It's not like you know her or she knows you or that a whole big relationship. Now, maybe you might know her, but it's probably just, you know, oh, that was kind. Toss it off. But if one of your best friends or maybe someone that you really look up to and admire, 
maybe someone of prominence takes the time to write you a letter, you end up keeping that letter. You might even frame it. You just toss the receipt aside. But that letter that has so much backing to it, you love that. John writes out of the depth of his experiences. He writes from his soul as an honest man that desires you and me to see something. He wants you to grasp the truth. He's sensible. He's rational. He's straightforward. Some people critique these guys as they look into the Bible and say, you know, it's just not reasonable to believe. Have you read the men who have written it? When you dig into their lives, these are reasonable, rational men. These are not men who would give their lives for a lie that they knew was untrue. They gave their lives because they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And so they gladly gave their whole life. John didn't have to in that way as a martyr, but the rest did. He writes out of the depth of the soul. And like all great authors, he desires to communicate something specific to his readers. Something that could change them forever. John tells us exactly why he published his book. He writes this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. Believe, church. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, John didn't write everything there was to write about Jesus. Everything there is to know about him, it's not in that book. However, what he did write was significant and what God desired us to know. He wants you to read and believe in Christ and thus receiving eternal life. His book is written to bless you, to bless all those that will give him a chance to give his eyewitness testimony and to listen and to soak it in and to say, this sounds like a reasonable man. This sounds like this happened. This sounds exactly like the savior of the world who would give his life as a ransom for many. He wants you to believe, to believe, to believe Verse 31 could be understood in in really two different ways, depending on some different things of the Greek text. One way you could read it is like this, but these are written so that you may come to believe in Jesus. One way to read it is that this is evangelistic. John is writing in order to beckon people to come and to receive Christ for the first time, to believe and be saved. But you could also read it as this, But these are written so that you may continue to believe in Jesus, as in you already believe, and John is writing to you to bolster your faith. This reading is less evangelistic, in a sense, if you take it that way, and more for the strengthening the faith of believers. Either way you read it, don't miss the point. John wants to provoke faith in Christ. Belief is John's big purpose. But I think beneath the main purpose is a secondary one, to defend Christian doctrine against false teaching that was circulating in the first century. RVG Tasker wrote this, There can be no doubt that at the time the fourth gospel was written, there was much erroneous teaching being given in the church which claimed to be Christian. 
That sounds like our culture where all kinds of garbage is preached from behind the pulpits across our nation. The truth isn't even valued anymore. What John laid out, garbage. Well, that's what they had. Late in the first century, Serinthus was teaching garbage. That the Son of God was not eternal, that He didn't exist prior to His birth to Mary. John refutes that in the first chapter, first verse. He gets right at it. Hendrickson writes, It is entirely probable that the apostle, in writing the gospel, had the error of Serinthus in mind. So in part, John is helping his readers think accurately about Jesus. Because God desires you, desires me, desires people of all ages to think accurately, to know Christ rightly as He actually is to be known, not what we think we want Him to be, to fashion Him in our own way, but to be as He actually is. And that would be really important to John because John loved Jesus. I found this amusing from RVG Tasker. Apparently, Polycarp told this story about John going into a bath at Ephesus, a public bath, and upon seeing Serinthus, ran out without taking a bath, without washing, and said, let us flee lest the bath should fall in as long as Serinthus, that enemy of truth, is within. That's a son of thunder for you. Why did you just say, that's mean, man. Serinthus could have heard you. I don't think he cared. Go get him, son of thunder. Docetism was also prevalent. Docetism taught that Jesus was not a true man in the flesh because matter was evil. It only seemed or appeared that Jesus was a man in the flesh. John addressed that false teaching in the book. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and what you believe about Jesus is critical to your faith. John wants you to see Jesus as he knew him, as he really is. This is why studying the, the book of John on a deep level is so radically important for us. I'm not sure we could do a, a more important study. Now, when you get into that saying, this book of the Bible is better than that, eh, don't go there. It's all great. It's all equal. It's all from God. But man, what a great place to start in the book of John. I believe we all have certain beliefs. We all believe something about Jesus. Uh, we, we see life a certain way, all of us unique to each person probably. We might agree on a lot and disagree on certain things. But do we believe what is actually true? Do you care what is true? Do you really believe the Bible? Is our life really informed by the truth of God's Word. If you missed Sunday school, you missed a treat. Sean, thank you. Thank you. I mean, do you really believe this stuff? Because if you believe in the little clip that he showed from Francis Chan, are we going to put this stuff into practice? Because if we study the book of John for the next long time and we believe every Sunday when we come, this is God speaking. This is God speaking. We must listen and we must put this into practice because it matters. There is nothing more that matters, or nothing that matters more, rather, than this truth. This is the start of what I hope to be a long and fruitful journey for you, for me, in the book of John. One more thing about John. More than being a Jew, 
more than being from Palestine or being a successful business owner, more than being among Christ's 12 or a published author, John was a man who found his greatest joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. John had a close friend. John had a king. John had a savior, and his name was Jesus. The true man behind this message is Jesus. It's the gospel. The Savior, the Savior. Above everything else, John was a man who delighted in Jesus Christ. John was a believer, a Christian, someone who gave up everything to follow Jesus Christ. He's not a superstar. He's not a God. He's not to be worshipped. He's nothing other than an ordinary man driven by the Holy Spirit and changed by the grace of God. John is just like you, just like me, minding his business, managing his business, mending his nets, and Jesus comes along and radically changes his life. Behind the powerful message of John's book is the man, Jesus Christ. I want you to see one more significant thing about John before we close from John 22 through 8. So Mary Magdalene ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. If you're going to start a track team, you want to recruit John. He was faster than Peter. I'll take John. I'll take John. Verse 5, and stooping to look in, John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him and went into the tomb. He probably was sucking some wind. <gasps> you know, and he gets there and he, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself, verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. He looked at the evidence before him. He saw it with his own eyes as an eyewitness testimony and he believed. Jesus is alive. It all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is not dead. He is alive. John believed. Will you believe? Will you look at the evidence and weigh all of the historical evidence that just mounts up after a while to say Jesus Christ is alive? John saw and believed. There was evidence in the tomb, evidence in front of his faith and face, and he put his trust in Christ. Well, the evidence is there, waiting for you to dig in, waiting for you to believe. And one of Jesus' best friends lays it out for you. This is how it is. This is how I remember. This is what I saw. The question is, have you seen the evidence and believed? Will you simply believe and follow Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth. We thank you for the faithful testimony and witness of the Apostle John, a man that had the gospel burning inside of him, a man that was changed by the grace of God, a man that was just common and ordinary, mending his nets one day with his brother and his dad, and 
Along came Jesus, and from that point on, he was eternally changed. I pray for Jerusalem Church. I pray for the visitors today that they would believe, that they would trust in Christ, that they would see their highest joy is in Him and that all of the pursuits of joy outside of Jesus Christ are meaningless. They won't bring us what we want. So help us just to believe the evidence you have given us, not to doubt. And when we do doubt, help us to believe, build our faith. God, may your Holy Spirit be working in someone's heart this morning that perhaps has never believed up until this point, never seen Jesus for what he really is, never been very excited about Christ or the gospel or the Bible or church or religion or spirituality. Maybe they were totally detached, and I just pray that you do a work of the Spirit. Build our faith. The Christians here who love Jesus, build them up. May they walk in holiness of life because this message is true. In Christ's name we pray, amen.